Well, I am excited to share with you in this morning's message as we talk about live generously. We've talked one, the first week about possibilities. And there's just many ways. When we think of generosity, so often our mind goes to money. And, and it's true, Jesus spoke, 15% of what he spoke about was in the area of our money. And I'd share with you that I had gone back in the history of the, some eight, seven to plus years that I'd been here, and I've only spoke 2% of the time. And I thought a little, I was a little convicted, so we're going to make up for it for the next five months. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but we talked about possibilities, that generosity is a lot more than just finances. And then we talked last week about the, the fact that it's a matter of perspective. When you, when you understand who's the maker of heaven and earth who is the giver of all things, there is a sense that instead of looking at what we can give out of what we have, out of our lack, he calls us to look for what we can give out of his supply, which means that we should look in faith, knowing that he has all things that are um, available for us. And so if he prompts us, we should do something. But we talked about doing that responsibly, and we'll talk more about that next week. But this week, I want to talk to you about a basic principle of generosity. How many of you would like to be generous? You don't have to raise your hand, okay. Some of you are immediately up there. I believe you do. How many of you would like to be generous? I'd like to share with you what is the secret of generosity, but there is no secret to it because you know it. You have probably read about it in God's word. But there is something about it when generous people begin to be generous, it touches lives. We ask you for a moment in this time of worship to think about a time when God has been generous to you. I would love for you to think about a time when someone else has been generous to you. They forgave you when they really didn't have to. They maybe came around you and encouraged you when they were in a place where it took the effort to write a note maybe, or whatever it would be, in whatever way someone's been generous to you, what would it look like if the world was generous, at least the world that you influenced felt generosity through you? We, um, as a community, I think God has given us opportunities to be really generous. And one of the things we do is once a month we take a caring fund, and that caring fund allows for us to be generous to people in a way where it's anonymous, where we're not having to single them out. Because it, at times, when you're in a time of need, how many likes to go around and, you know, and just share the depth of your need? You, you usually are a bit ashamed or you're a bit in the place where you go, you know, it would be really wonderful if someone thought of me. And so as a community, we have those opportunities. And I shared with you last week when we took that caring fund about a response of a single mom and how that had really made a difference in their life. Let me share with you a few other notes we have gotten recently uh, from a young family who, as a result of your generosity, were able to get some car repairs. How can we begin to thank you for your, urgent, uh, for your urgently needed generous aid in fixing our car? We are humbled and surprised and deeply grateful. Through all of our losses this year, we focus on hope and what is good in our life together, the richness of our love for each other, our children, and God, and we have clung to Isaiah 41.10, do not fear for I'm with you. Don't anxiously look around, for I'm your God, I will strengthen you, and I will help you. That has been kind of anchor for them. And then they said, thanks for being the vessel through which God helped us. Let me share with you a note from another person, a senior adult living on a fixed income. 
wrote, I want to sincerely express my gratitude and thankfulness to Wyzetta Free for the financial help in paying my dental bill. May God bless this church and all who contribute. A young mom with significant health issues. Thanks so much for your outpouring of care for me. My battle has been long and hard fought. Having you reach out to help ease the financial load has lifted our spirits more than you will ever realize. We are so grateful for the love of this church family. This is what God has done through your generosity. And we don't often maybe hear the impact of what you have given and how it impacts others. There's all kinds of stories you don't hear about. One of the things I'm just grateful for, and I look at our church and I thank God for your generosity. Um, we have as a church, not only through our, our general fund, the one that you know, pays the bills, we take a, a portion of that and give that to missions. But we also have another missions fund. And when you add that together, that's like 20% of our overall budget. We give some 350 or so plus thousand dollars away. You do. To impact people around the world. And that kind of generosity touches the hearts and lives of people. And I'm really grateful because I do believe, as we talk about even this Grow and Gather, I believe once again, you are a people who will listen to God and you will respond as he prompts you. But I want you to listen to an article from Relevant Magazine, which is a a Christian magazine written really to kind of 20-somethings, 30-somethings. And in this magazine, the title is, What Would Happen If the Church Tithed? So this is a young guy who's writing about this. The author, Mike Holmes, claims to be a regular guy, but he says he's on a revolution to stir up radical giving. He writes, the church today is not great at giving. This isn't exactly news, but it's a statistical fact. Tithers make up only 10 to 25% of a normal congregation. That is... Out of 100 people in the congregation, only 10 or at most 25 of those 100 people give 10% of their income to the church or to another God-good cause. And he continues, 80% of Americans only give 2% of their income to charity. This is just of all Americans, give about 2%. Today, Christians in the church are only giving 2.5% of their income. And he makes a little side comment, during the Great Depression, Christians gave at a rate of 3.3%. And Holmes writes, the truth is giving is a heart issue, not a money issue. He continues, numbers like that can invoke a lot of guilt, which isn't really the point. The larger point is what would happen if believers got serious and were to increase their giving to a minimum of, he writes, let's say 10%, tithe. There would be an additional $165 billion for churches to use and distribute. The global impact would be phenomenal. Now, again, this is a guy who's writing to an audience in their 20s and 30s. Here's just a few things the church could do with this kind of money, he writes. $25 billion could relieve extreme hunger throughout the world. That is starvation and deaths from preventable diseases, and they could do it within five years. $12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five years. $15 $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically at places in the world where 1 billion people live on less than a dollar a day. And $1 billion could fully fund all overseas missions work. And then he writes, and over $100 billion would still be left for any additional ministry expansion. These are amazing numbers, writes Holmes. 
And then he poses this question. So why don't we give? You see, a generous life has nothing to do with how much money you have. Studies show that again and again. It has everything to do with our heart. And it has everything to do with how our heart is formed to be generous and to respond generously. I like this quote. Andrea read it at our Ash Wednesday service on Thursday night. No, just kidding. It's Ash Wednesday. Just wanted to see if you're listening. And you weren't. Or that was a bad joke. I don't know. Anyway. So on Ash Wednesday night, Andrea read these words. God is the perfect parent. One of the things God deeply values is generosity. Our generous father throughout the Bible models, teaches, and encourages the formation of a big-hearted generosity in his children. Seeing his generous heart formed in the character of his children makes God smile big. I like that quote. I wrote it. Um, Two weeks ago, you heard that in the message. So here's the question I'd like you to tackle this morning. How would your heavenly father form a generous heart? How would your heavenly father in the hearts of his children form a heart that values generosity? And not just values it in its head, but actually lives it out in their life. If he's a perfect parent, and we are his children, what would he do? So what I wanted to do is just take some time to look at this from a different angle, and I want you to think about it with regard to something else and make it very practical. As a parent, and let's say some of you obviously were parents at one time, and you're grandparents now, so you kind of have a different role to play, that fun role, right? Some of you are parents currently, and some of you will be parents. So I want you to think about this. If you were to actually try and form in your child the value of cleanliness, okay, you want them to be a person who is clean and keeps some order, what would be some of the things that you might have them do as little babies growing up? Anybody? Go, shout it out. I'm half deaf in one ear, so I'm going to have a hard time hearing this. So, What? Take a bath, okay. You got to shout out real loud. What was that? About their... Pick up their clothes. Clean their room. Brush your teeth. How many of you have been parents before? You kind of get the drill. It's a pretty simple thing when you think about it. I began to think about it, and I said, if I was to establish how to create a value of cleanliness, I'd do some of the things that I did as a parent. I'd do some of the things that my parents did as a parent, which is really amazing because my mom seemed to get a better understanding of the value of cleanliness than my dad. But anyway, that's another thought. And, and, and then my parents' parents probably did this, and so did theirs and theirs and theirs. So here's just some of the things. I just want to talk about now, how do you form a value of cleanliness in a child? And, and you already mentioned some. At least once a week, usually Saturday evening, you probably have your kids take a bath, right? Isn't it interesting that when kids are small, you have to make bath time fun? I mean, and kids are, I mean, I just remember, it wasn't something that I liked. And, and what I really didn't care for is every once in a while, my mom was so busy or she was away or doing something, and my dad would have to give us the bath, and that was not my dad was just kind of, he was one of these guys, like this kind of thing, boom. I felt like getting beat up a little bit. Maybe he was, I don't know. But I remember the bath once a week, Saturday night was a big deal, especially because we're coming to Sunday, there was a sense of, you know, you're going to give your best and do your best and, and, and all that. And I remember one time my dad um, actually scrubbing my ear and it was hurting and I was kind of yelling, and he finally goes, Carol, which is my mom's name, Carol, come in here, I can't get this dirt off his ear. And my mom comes in and she goes, Ken, that's a freckle. And so, you know, I, 
I hated that. My dad giving back. Anyway, so enough about that. Every day you need to brush your teeth. Twice a day might even be good. We might do it for cleanliness, but we also even do it to keep the dental bills down, right? Put on clean clothes the start of every day, right? Pick up your toys when you're done playing with them. Take your dishes and put them in the dishwasher. Or if you're just as old as me, you take your dishes and you had your turn doing what? Washing the dishes. Pick up your clothes off the floor. Make your bed when you get up. Anybody have to do that? These are all things you do that you have a child do because in the process of doing that, the purpose of these what I call cleanliness laws was to teach the value of cleanliness so that you would form within the heart of that person the value of cleanliness and cleanliness would become a law that would guide their heart, right? Does that make sense? Anybody disagree? That's, I mean, I think every parent, everyone has done that at some point. In fact, I had a really interesting experience when I was in college. I remember we had a, whole, uh, a house together, eight guys in our senior year, and, and there was tension after about a couple months that was thick as could be, and we started holding once-a-week meetings. And you know what the tension was about? It was about how to keep the house clean. There were just different standards of cleanliness. I remember when I went on a trip to Africa, and the person that I'd gone with who had been serving and done much in Africa said to me, you'll notice as we go to some of these countries, some of these countries you'll see were actually settled by the English because the English had this law that cleanliness is next to godliness. He said, even though they're not English any longer or under their regime, you can still see that they were kind of taught the ABCs of cleanliness. At least there's that value there because you'll go to some that had none of that. So it does seem to have an impact to create cleanliness. And the purpose of cleanliness laws as a parent is so that eventually your child's character will be formed and cleanliness will be a law in their heart. Now, with that understanding, with this understanding that some external laws that you even as a child may not really like, picking up clothes, taking and, and cleaning up the room with your toys afterwards, brushing your teeth, taking all those things, those external laws that you didn't like, eventually they become an internal law of your heart. And if you notice, some kids, when they get to be in high school, they will take not just one bath or one shower a week, they'll take two or three showers a, week, a day, in fact, because they don't want to smell around someone they're trying to attract. Right? Now you know they get it. And it's established. So back to my original question. How would our Heavenly Father, a perfect parent, develop in his children generous hearts? I, I really I want you to understand this because even if you're doing this, this is important to understand for you to share with others to help them understand because people will ask you these questions. He would give some laws. He would lay down some external commands that over time would become internalized. He would, through some simple practices, form the heart of his children so that the principle of generosity would flow from their heart as they grow into maturity and become adult children. And so if you want to look at that and you look at your Bible, I want you to think for a second. In the Old Testament, there are about five, to really about seven books where God refers to Israel... You know what name he calls them? The children of, of God. You can go through and you can find that he calls them children of God. And this is really important, so I want you to catch this point. 
Five times in Genesis, not till the end of Genesis, around chapter 32, when he's starting to form the family of God before they go into Egypt, he calls them a few times the children of God. Five times in Genesis at the end. But listen to this. 118 times in Exodus, when he's bringing them out, he calls them the children of God. 51 times in Leviticus, a book about the laws of God, he calls them the children of God. Same time period. 160 times in Numbers, which is another look at the people of Israel who were marching through the wilderness, he calls them the children of God. 20 times in Deuteronomy, which is a retelling later at a point of this time they were coming out of Egypt and through the wilderness. 66 times in Joshua. And then 69 times in the Judges. He basically says from this period of about 1500 B.C. to about 1100 B.C., 400 years, these people he called his children. And then at a certain point, he stops referring to them as his children. It's less than 100 times in a number of books in that time from the time they get into the land of promise to the time they begin to get kings. In a period of time, they're almost teenagers for a very short time. Now catch this. By the time they get to the prophets... You get to the latter and minor prophets. A lot of different books on the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, Obadiah. You could name, just name all these prophets. Only 47 times are they referred to as the children of Israel. Only 47 times. And when he refers to it, he's not talking about them now. He's often telling them to rethink back when they were what? Children. In his eyes. Now, what you need to understand is if they were children, God set up some laws. And if you go back and you look at Exodus and you look at Leviticus and you look at Deuteronomy and Numbers and you look at some of these areas where there are some of the laws that were given to the children of God, you'll find there are a number of different laws. It makes sense. They're being treated like children. They were living under the law. Many external laws that were given to them in order that it would become a principle internalized in their heart. And so he'd give them laws, some laws which would have consequences to them. You know, you give some laws like that, you do that and you're what? You're grounded. Or you have a what? time out. And so he would say, if you steal, there's a punishment to it. If you seduce a woman, there's a punishment. If you take advantage of a widow or an orphan, there are some prescribed consequences to those kind of actions. And then there's a number of laws that are sought to form the heart. They're specifically given to develop your character. Things like do not spread false reports. And when you lend money to a needy, don't be like the money lender. Charge them, those who are needy, no interest. There's not consequences to these, but he's giving you things that you should do because if you do them, they form your heart. Do not mistreat an immigrant or oppress them, for you yourselves know how it feels to be an immigrant because you were aliens in Egypt. In a sense, in many of these laws, he's saying live generously. These aren't even about money. But catch this. There are a number of laws where it it says to the children of Israel, specifically to train them to be generous with their actual income. Laws that are given to them about animals that they may be raising or crops that they are growing or money that they are actually earning. He says, live generously, and I want you to note these commands to tithe. It's the word tithe. It's the one secret that I said that you probably knew about. It was in the Bible. 
like a kind of once a week take a bath or a couple times a day brush your teeth laws. Listen to Leviticus 27, 30 through 32. Again, remember, these are laws that are given that they might follow through, just like picking up your clothes, making your bed, whatever it is, so that in your heart this would be formed. He says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain, from the soil, or fruit, from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. He's kind of just saying, recognize God has given you all this. He's the owner of it. You're kind of a tenant. You're renting. And just like in your own home, you better make sure you pay the rent first. There's a a part of it that says it's just a thanksgiving back to God. It's one of the first things you do. He says, it is holy to the Lord. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy, separated, given unto God. Leviticus 27, 30 and 32. Numbers chapter 18, 21 through 26 says this. I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work that they will do serving at the tent of meeting. Speak to the Levites. These are the priests. These are the ones who work for the temple. And say to them, when you receive from the Israelites the tithe I give you as your inheritance, you must present a tenth. So even the priests who weren't out there in, the, in, in raising cattle and weren't raising crops and weren't in some way making money in that way, he says, I give to you and I expect you to give a tenth of what has been given to you. And Deuteronomy 14, 22 says, Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. And then there's one interesting statement that you can read in Exodus 23, 15 when he's talking about coming before the Lord. He says, Do not appear before me empty-handed. Isn't that interesting? And you kind of go, Well, you know, those are Old Testament. Look at in Proverbs. Uh, and I'm going to actually look at Proverbs chapter 3. He says, My child... Do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. So he's talking to children. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Then that verse 9, just go, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing. Your vats will brim over with new wine. You recognize if you have the perspective that he's the provider, then he provides for you so that you can begin to follow these external laws so that these external laws will become internal within your heart. And in doing so, they will teach you generosity. And that perspective of who God is and how we respond to him through that principle begins to build in us generosity. So when I ask yourself, do you want to be generous? It seems to be the word of God says there's a certain external kind of law, and we'll talk in a minute more about what is 10% and why that might be important, that God seems to put out there for the purpose of creating adult children. Last week I had a person in their 20s in their first professional job stopped me and handed me two checks, sizable, two checks, each with three zeros behind it. And they said, you know best where where these two can be used. And I was floored. I was moved. Honestly, I had tears. I immediately prayed, oh, Father in heaven, would you bless this, your child? And as I was handed the checks, Uh, the person said to me, you know, this isn't easy. I could have paid off my car loan with this. And yet I know in my heart this is right. And this is what God desires. I ask quite often, does God really want a tithe? I'm asked that by people. Does he really want a tenth of what we earn? And I I answer yes, not because he needs it, but because you need it. I think God is pretty smart. He's a really good parent. 
He's the perfect parent, and he, he set 10% as a law, a command to follow, because he knows that this is how a child's heart is formed. And we who are young in our faith or may have been in the church many years doesn't mean you're mature in your faith. It may be in this area that you have the Grinch's kind of heart, and he's saying, I want to stretch it two sizes a little bit bigger. And it may mean you need to think about, what am I doing with what God has given me? Now, you're thinking possibly, but listen, Pastor, that's the Old Testament. Jesus never, in any of his conversations, any of his recording words in the Gospels, never does he say anything about a tithe, which is exactly right. In fact, if you go into the New Testament letters and you read all the things that Paul and all the other writers wrote, not one of them talk about a tithe, and you're exactly right. Well, first, let me just share with you the reason Jesus probably never said, at least recorded, anything about a tithe is because it was pretty much an established fact among the people he was talking to. There was no need to even bring that up in one sense, at least recorded. But there's also another reason why I believe he didn't bring it up. Because he was moving from the law. He was looking at, just like if you, if you, read, if you read the Old Testament, so here's a little Old Testament theology for you. If you read the Old Testament and see the children of Israel, by the time he comes, I did this study once. I, I, I remember one time I was watching Oprah um, years ago and, and she was talking about shame and toxic shame and all that stuff and I was going, yeah, there is this thing. Shame is a horrible thing. It, and, and I was trying to, and I went to the Bible and I thought, I want to look this up and I looked up shame and I, I thought, you know, God won't use the word shame. He won't say shame on you. You ever thought of that? You want to say to your child, shame on you? Well, I looked at that, and what's really interesting is you look in the Old Testament, shame is mentioned in Genesis, but not when they're children. You know the only time, and it floored me when he started saying shame on you, was when they were adult children and prophets. Because at that point, they should have been embarrassed by the way they were living. They should have been embarrassed that these external laws, many of them that God had placed among them as a people over a period of time when they became children, became teenagers, and now as adult children, they are walking around saying, God, I could care less about what you desire. So here's the real issue about this. Because people go, well, 10%, is that, you know, that's an Old Testament thing. And I go, you know what? I don't think it's an Old Testament thing. I think it's a principle in the nature of God as he raises us as children. And then when you look at the New Testament, it's all about grace. And he's basically, in my heart, I just say, if God was saying 10% is a good thing to do to establish this in your heart, it's good to take a bath, it's good to brush your teeth, it's good to pick up around your house, it's good to do this, 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 this. That becomes an established part of you. Now when you get to the New Testament, he says, you're under grace, and he says, now be as generous as I am. Which I would give my life on a cross for you. And I think... When I look at this, I ask myself, if God expected his children in the Old Testament who were under the law to give 10%, what do you think God expects his adult children who are living under grace to give? And I ask you again, do you want to be generous? Folks, this is not easy for a pastor to preach on. Because you can look at me and you can have in your head all kinds of motivations that I have within me. And I'll just tell you, this is God's word. This is not about me. And so let me just share with you some practical suggestions, kind of conclude on that. Is 10% the rule? You'll probably know what I'll say. No, it's a guideline. I believe it's just like a shower once a week or brushing your teeth daily. It's enough to stretch you into dependency on God. It's high enough that you might get a nosebleed. 
That makes sense? It's enough for you to get out of your comfort zone to say, God, this is more than I might be able to actually do. And then I have to say to people who have grown up at the church, and 10% of something you've been taught as you're a child, 10% may be far lower than what God's calling to stretch to do. It's not a law, folks. And I ask from time to time, um, do you tithe on your gross or your net? And I go, it's not a law. You go to God and, and figure that one out. And then some people have said, should I start today? And here's my opinion. Yes. If you're in debt, I would still choose to give some. A a bit. And then get your financial affairs in order. Sit down with someone. Make sure you do the hard work. I, I can tell you myself from experiencing some debt. It is really hard as a couple to say, we're going to get outside help or we're going to get some... We're going to get our act together on this so that we can give. I want to talk about that next week. There's a practices. But should I start today? See, the temptation, I think you'll hear whispering in your ear is someday. You know, when things are better, someday. You know, when that, when that, when that income actually comes in, you've been waiting for it. When the promotion occurs, when someday. Then you can start. Doing it. I just want to tell you, um, I, want to live, I want to read to you. Someone wrote me this. A high, someone who was in high school as I was doing this series, wrote, live generously? There's an email I got. Whoa, yeek. Cut to me sinking lower in my chair under the conviction of what I know to be true. I don't live generously enough. This is true in all areas of my life, but most often tangibly when it comes to money. Growing up here at YZ Free, my parents always sent me with a quarter or two for the offering. At 15, I started my first job. I made about $6.50 an hour, and I thought I had made it when I was bumped to six seventy-five. I thought, now I've made it. And around that time, I remember our youth pastor, this was a while ago, Mike Brinkman, teaching about generosity and giving, and he explained that if we waited to give until we had enough, we would never would, and he summed up, just give. And she goes on and shares through a college students being young, newly married, wanting to put in uh, countertops rather than give. But that message that said, start now, made all the difference. I could read to you all kinds of, even this is just ancient truth, folks. Many ancient texts talk about the importance of practice. If you start doing it, it forms your heart. Aristotle used a, sim- he used a metaphor. He said, men become builders by building houses, harpists by playing the harp. Similarly, we grow just by the practice of just actions, self-controlled by exercising our self-control, courageous by performing acts of courageous. And Jesus said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and he doesn't say who hears them and has learned from them and has studied them and is coming around and hearing it more and more. He says, those who have heard the words of mine and put them into practice. That's the wise person. That's the person who actually grows in generosity or in forgiveness or in any area that you begin to say, I want to be more like you, Jesus. It takes not just hearing it, it doesn't take coming and singing and worshiping. And those are all good things. It takes actually obedience that begins to expand the heart. And then give cheerfully. If you truly want to understand the heart of generosity, our Heavenly Father um, desires to form in you, I would love for you to take time and study and read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Just go ahead and read that sometime. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But I'm going to read to you verses 6 through 8 of chapter 9. Because Paul summarizes his thoughts on this. He says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. That's a law of life. 
Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Here's the New Testament teaching on giving, a, a big part of it. You should decide in your heart ahead of time what you're to give. And not reluctantly or under compulsion, because we're in an age of grace. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And God loves a cheerful giver. So I was preaching a couple of weeks ago. And I had this prompting for the last month or so, God, I'd love to have some people share stories. And I got done with a message, and someone came up to me and, and shared a story, and I said, would you be willing to share that? And, and the person's response immediately was, well, I'm not a public speaker. And I said, all the better. We're not looking for a public speaker. And so, Karen, are you still willing to come up and share this story? Yeah. I asked Sharon if she'd pray about it and she would do it. So now everyone's going to be afraid to talk to me after a message, aren't you? <laughs> Karen. I was really doing this as an encouragement to him, not... <laughs> not an encouragement this to them? It makes me real nervous, so um, forgive me if I don't... Well, you know, Karen, I just, I, I wanted, you shared with me, I thought it was really cool, and I was talking about being, right now, about being a cheerful giver, and you had an experience in your life when you were going to church that hit that very thing because you were not necessarily giving under great joy. So why don't you share a little bit about your experience? Well, um, I was going to another church where I really believed the word was being spoken, and um, our pastor was giving a, a sermon on tithing, and he was saying that you should be giving out of your heart what the Lord tells you to give, not because it's legalistic or you know, expected. And so I'm an all-or-nothing person. <laughs> so I decided to go home. And did, and he t- did he say, if you're giving that way, stop giving? He did. Kind of the church will be okay? Yeah, so he said, you know. So I'm not telling you to do that. No, just kidding. No. But he did. He no, said, I'm don't, sure. yeah. don't do that. You yeah. know? So yeah. I went home and quit giving and started to pray about it well so and when I was comfortable I started again you know I decided okay this is how much I think I'm supposed to tithe and it was more than I had been giving and frankly it was uncomfortable for my budget and I thought well my life verse is trust in the Lord with all your heart and so I thought well this is what I'm supposed to do so this is what I'm going to do so you um, stepped out in faith. I did. God spoke to you. You stopped. God spoke to you because your desire was to do it. And he, he told you to give more than what you were. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So just like you're stepping out in faith here, you stepped out in faith back there. So what happened? Well, um, my bills kept getting paid. I was just amazed because I didn't really think that was going to happen. And, but I thought, well, in faith, this is what I'm doing. And... Um, in about a year, I was led totally by the Lord to a new job. And, um, and then that was a very clear, another whole story. And um, so I went to that job saying, okay, Lord, just let me survive. You know, please don't let my income go down. You know, and um, I just need survival. And within a year to two years, my income had increased by five times. <laughs> And God blessed you. Yeah, God blessed me major, you know, in many other ways. But, and I always hesitate to tell the story because I don't like it to look like a recipe for receiving, giving and receiving. And, um, but for me, it was 
totally the Lord leading me to a bigger faith with him and a bigger trust in him and blessed me so many ways. Karen, thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it. I, I think what's so cool about that is, you know, there's two sides of this. We're not, that's not like she said about a recipe for receiving or getting something from God. It's not about a prosperity kind of gospel, but it is about the fact that sometimes you need to hear stories of faith. That if God is prompting you, he promises to provide. And that, that, that takes for you to pray about it. Sometimes you may need to be bringing some other people around you in prayer. But God is a God who wants us to be generous in our forgiveness, in the way that we encourage people, in the way that we come around offices where we are positive. We're not talking about in these situations you've got to take huge steps, baby steps. Maybe what God is calling you to do. And I have to be honest, if, if you're in a place where you're kind of begrudging everything with regard to giving here, I do say stop and listen to God. Because he does want a cheerful heart. Let's stand together and we're just going to close this time in prayer. Father, I don't know how these words land on the hearts of others, but I know it's challenged me. Because I know this isn't just about giving. It's about becoming like you in every way. And we keep saying that our step is, is to help one another take the next step to know more intimately, to follow more closely, And throughout our life, we want to end our life becoming as close as we can to being like you, Jesus, so that when we see you, you will translate us into your presence into the fullness of who you've created us to be. And I pray, God, right now that as people are just contemplating what it may mean in their own hearts to be a generous, big-hearted child, Would these be not just words, but God, as you, through your son Jesus said, help us to put them into practice. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. If you'd like prayer, there'll be people who would love to pray for you. Um, God bless you and have a great weekend. Thanks.